All right, everyone. Today's episode is brought to you by our wonderful public school system here in Prescott, Arizona. The Prescott Unified School District has been serving children for over 150 years. And while the community and district has grown and changed considerably since 1868, the commitment to children, families, and the community remains the same to this day. PUSD welcomes all students, including those who live outside the district boundaries, because at Prescott Unified School District, every child, every day, Everywhere matters. Proceeds from your membership and our advertisers with Raven Productions goes directly to supporting the arts programs in the PUSD. to the Creative Convergence, an audible nexus of the creative arts. I'm your host, Candace Devine. Join me in conversation as we discuss the journey creatives take on their path to success. Hey everybody, I am so thrilled for today's podcast guest. He is hilarious, he is an incredibly talented writer, and he's just a very sincere human being with so much insight and observation of the world around him, and he puts it down on the paper in such a funny and intelligent way. Join me today for my conversation with Michael Estrin. Let me tell you a little bit about him. Michael Estrin's life is a funny story, and so he writes about it, primarily in novels and creative nonfiction. For adults, Michael writes Slacker Noir, a mashup of stoner comedy and detective fiction. Michael based Not Safe for Work, the first novel in his Porn Valley Mystery series, on his time as a reporter at Adult Entertainment's Second Best Trade publication. His first novel, Murder and Other Distractions, tells the story of an apathetic clickbait writer who becomes entangled in a bizarro murder investigation. It's loosely based on Michael's experience writing on, for, and about the internet in the first decade of this millennium. For the young, and young at heart, Michael writes on Wattpad, the world's largest social reading platform. Michael's stories are about boys learning to be better men. In 2018, Michael won his second Wadi Award for Peter's Little Peter. His latest young adult story, Hamburger Hamlet, is an April 2021 Wattpad editor's pick. He is a member of the Wattpad Stars program. To capture the comedy of life's mundane moments, Michael writes creative nonfiction. He began sharing these stories on Facebook in 2015, but recently moved to a Sunday newsletter he calls Situation Normal. In 2019, Michael published Ride slash Share, a collection of vignettes about absurd, joyful, and sometimes heartfelt experiences with Lyft drivers. His personal essays have been published in Vox, Narratively, and Tablet. While gathering string for his stories, Michael has pivoted from law, clickbait, porn journalism, mainstream journalism, and screenwriting twice. He lives in Los Angeles with his amazing wife, Christina, and their shiftless layabout of a dog, Mortimer. If you'd like to learn more about Michael Estrin, please see our show notes for links to his newsletter, Twitter, Wattpad, Instagram, and website. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. I have such a fun guest today and a thoughtful guest and an introspective guest. And I say that because he's a writer. And I feel like, and I can't wait to talk to him because he can clarify this for me, but I feel like writers have this incredible perspective on the world that the average bear doesn't have. And today I have Michael Estrin here, and he's going to talk to us about his life and his writing style and all the places that your voice is being read and heard. Welcome, Michael. 
Thank you. And we actually know each other from what I call my previous life of sorts. Pre, pre, it's like I grade things on like motherhood and pre-motherhood, post-motherhood, because <laughs> um, the lifestyle shifts. But we yeah. know each other from my pre-motherhood days of a lot of gigging and a lot of playing and touring. And you lived in L.A. when I lived in L.A. And, uh, and still do. Oh, you're still in I, L.A. I'm still, I'm actually born and raised in Los Angeles. You're a native like me. I mean, I don't live there I mean, anymore, but I'm a native. I'm a native, and then I'm told by my wife that I'm actually a unicorn because <laughs> my like my parents were both born here, and then some of my grandparents were born here, and then I have like other more distant relatives who were also born here. So there's like there's someone genetically connected to me. We might be related. It's entirely possible because <laughs> it's actually not that big of a city when you kind of get down to it. Right. I don't yeah. I don't know that I go back quite as far as you go because my mother was definitely born in Burbank. My great grandparents got there from Oklahoma in like the nineteen early nineteen hundred turn of the century nineteen hundreds. So oh, yeah. they were there, but they weren't born there. But there were some people there as like as early as like I think the late 18-somethings. I don't yeah. know them, obviously. <laughs> but then there were like, but I know that like my my maternal grandfather went to, I think he went to high school in uh, Compton. Oh my gosh. Uh, which was obviously a very different city totally, then. But, totally. Uh, but Emmanuel Arts High School. And then, yeah. So wow. Well, that's a, that's a perfect like segue into the beginnings of you. Let's talk about this. So you're born and raised in Los Angeles. Do you have siblings? What are you, what's your family like? Uh, I do have, I have one sister. Uh, we're very close. Her name's Allison. So she's two years younger than okay. me. Uh, it was just the two of us. I did, I, you know, it's weird. It's like, I, I did not have a typical like upbringing, but I didn't know that until, <laughs> until later. Cause like, you don't like, you know, you're a you kid. Only so know you only know what know. you know. Right. Yeah. And so it, it seemed normal to me, everything that was kind of going on, but it really in retrospect was not. So my, <laughs> Which was probably a good kind of like tagline for my career, but normal um, but not <laughs> normal but not. Yeah. Uh, so my my father, um, and I'm going to brag a little bit here, but was was the world's best sound man. And when I say that, like he he really did have that. I would say that's a very credible claim to to that. I mean, he for his time, he did a lot of like live events, so live televised events. So. If you're listening to this podcast, you've actually heard my dad's sound at some point. If you've ever watched the Olympics, if you've watched the Super Bowl, uh, if you've, if oh you've seen like a Oh my gosh, what visit. a badass. Right. And then, so, but like when you're a kid, you don't know. You don't know how so cool like, that is. Yeah. And you don't know that it's weird. So like my dad <laughs> did the sound for the LA Olympics and it was obviously, it was a really big gig for him. And, but what I didn't realize was like, I, I kind of thought that it was, there was another, a, a, the kid, a kid that I went to school with, dad lit the torch for the opening ceremonies of the Olympics. Amazing, but I, but I was seven at the time, right? right? So my my perspective on it was, oh, this is like the parents of my little elementary school putting on a show, which is kind of like what they would like. It was a lot of parent teacher involvement and stuff like that, <laughs> right. and so I just thought, oh yeah, like this is just like another Westland school production because that's like how it felt to me as a seven year old, and it wasn't until like. Years later, like it's, even that you were I like, got it. Obviously, oh wait, yeah. it's a global stage. I understood of. what the <laughs> yeah, I understood what the Olympics were a little bit later, but it wasn't until I like reached college that I met people who had grown up like all over the country and all over the world who were like, yeah, that that's like not normal for your dad to be working on like a a show that like a billion people watch. Right. Right. That that's unusual. Totally. Yeah. That's amazing. So, and what was your what's your mom like? 
Uh, she was a school teacher. Um, yeah. And so she was she's a lot more grounded. Um, and I kind of get a lot of my, a lot, like, good relationships with both of them. But, like, with my mom, my mom was, like, very much the reader in the family. So her nose was, like, kind of always buried in a book. She wanted to kind of, like, nothing to do with crowds. I would, like, go and tag along with my dad, like, uh, you know, like kind of backstage of the show. My favorite was always kind of like setting up like, you know, days or months even in advance. But like, as it got closer to the thing, I would get this like really kind of like nervous feeling. Like I, I am not a live event like person, like I, like I can go in the audience. Like you enjoy it, but you're not the one that wants to be front and center on stage and everybody stare at me. I had to operate the spotlight for a school play and I was shaking. <laughs> and so I like if the spotlight operator is shaking, that's a bad thing, obviously. But like it's funny is because I feel like I feel like we could we could write you could you could write. Um nobody wants to read what I write, but uh unless it's a rhyming and short phrases in a song. Um, but I feel like you could write a really fun small sketch about the spotlight operator getting nerves and like missing <laughs> missing the Probably action. Could. <laughs> Probably could. Yeah, I, I got I got yelled at like by my my teacher he was like dude you're like all over the place and I was like I'm I'm super nervous and he was like, like just That's... follow the body <laughs> yeah he was like just follow it well and he was like just 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 hold it right and I was like oh, I can't I'm like I'm shaking so yeah it, it was a really yeah so that was always my kind of like this sort of like this like kind of dichotomy right where like my mom was very much like sort of she's more of a bookworm right. and my dad uh is just kind of uh, was kind of just like a larger than life guy who was sort of you know, if you asked him like the show that he wanted to be doing, it was whatever the whole world was watching. That wow. was his. That I wonder was his if that's specialty. part of what made them tick together, like a good balancing in yang. You have a bigger than life. You have a little bit more of an introverted, homebody grounding kind of uh, bring it back to center type of a person. And I you think know. so. Yeah. Yeah, I I think so. And I, I mean, I, it definitely like if if you if you kind of are the product of your parents, then I'm I think you I have- kind of got. Both of those things where I'm I'm happiest like when my work gets out there to people and and people are reading it and talking about it and I I do like I find delight in that yeah but I would be really really happy if I'm like like far away from that right like if I heard about it it, it would be better than if I actually saw it right right like if it came back to you you're like by the way I have so many people love this and you're like yes. Yes, that yeah. would be huge. That's yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, that's perfect. So as a little kid, as a person with your sister, were you both kind of creatively minded people? Were you a creative kid? Did you have, were you a, a studious bookworm kind of like your mom? Did Were you more extroverted as a child? How did that play into your um, youth? It was a little bit, my, my sister was the more obviously creative one. She did a lot of dance and she did a lot of acting. Uh, I, I was not obviously creative. I, I would say I was not, I was not particularly good at, at like theater or anything like that. Like I went to schools that were, that emphasized a lot of creativity. So I was always having to do that. Like they were electives, but you kind of didn't have a choice. So I guess that defeats the elective purpose, yeah. but I was always involved. I was always involved in, in those kinds of things, but it wasn't, it wasn't really my bag. I was more bookish, but with a caveat. And that is I have, um, some pretty severe like learning disabilities and eye issues. So I actually learned to read very late. And it was really, I think, largely because of my mom. My mom noticed I, I was more likely to play sports, uh, but I wasn't good at them. One of the reasons why I wasn't good at them was because <laughs> just terrible eyesight, terrible hand-eye coordination. And right. I would like, 
in little league, I would kept on getting, I led the league in getting hit by the pitch. And, <laughs> That's and not it, funny. I'm not laughing at you. It's just, no, it it's, is funny. it's funny it, in the retelling. <laughs> it's funny in the retelling. Yeah. That's, that's another good tackle. But yeah. <laughs> But I, my mom would say to me, like, it, it's like you don't even notice that the ball is coming. And I was like, yeah, I don't see it. And my, I, I was fortunate that I had a coach who was also uh, really thoughtful. And he was like, do you, do you see that the stitches, like, do you see the, the rotation? And I was like, what rotate? Like, what are the stitches? What are the rotation? Right. And they were both like, we've got to get this kid looked at. And so I ended up going to some, like, eye doctors and also some educational therapists and they kind of this was a, this was the early 80s so people weren't really talking about things like dyslexia and they were sort right. of beginning to but it was pretty outside of the mainstream i think yeah um so these were things that you know fortunately my mom had a, a background as an educator so she did a lot of her own research and a lot of her own advocacy and she figured this out and she was like oh he he had like he he really his eyes are just not tracking and so wow <laughs> go mom yeah, and then from pretty much, I would say about like third grade until maybe junior year of high school, I would three days a week I would be uh, going to either an eye doctor's office to do uh, mostly eye exercises. Yes, yeah, like a physical or, therapy for your eyes type of a thing. Basically, and like learning to basically learning to like first it was hard for me to get them to move at all, and then getting them to move. Uh, initially, they would sort of move from right to left, which is the exact opposite of how English reads so you need to go from left right. to right do you so read hebrew a, no I, I don't read hebrew and when it came i don't either my, i just was i didn't know if that would help out when it came time for my bar mitzvah actually my um my eye doctor and my like educational therapist they were like oh god we've spent so long getting him to go the right way please like please. just have him do it phonetically yeah. and so that's what i did yeah wow Oh, that's incredible, actually. I mean, to think about the way that your whole life kind of rearranged in order to catch up to, you know, just out of a, a physical impairment that fortunately was something you could grow with and evolve and, and work on. Was, yeah. Is there a reason, um, is, is there something that explains what, ha like, is it a specific... Um, it's a combi it's a combination of of some eye issues and some and just some learning disabilities wow, okay. generally. So it's it's not it's not one that's, specific. Uh, that's what thing. I was asking. Thank you for clarifying. Yeah. I didn't know if it, there was like a specific name for a, a disability that connects the two elements. I didn't that's what I was trying to figure out. You know, if if there is a name for it, there there probably wasn't then or it didn't or it just like went right over my head right. at the time. You know, it was just like, oh, I have to go because like I would say things like I have to go to like learn to track, right? Which is just the left to right. right. And that took that just took years of of work. Not that like not that it doesn't all click at once. It sort of fades right. in and then and then what happens is is like your eyes get like in my case, my eyes would get very tired of doing that after say 10 minutes. So I'd have to build up a lot of stamina because obviously 10 minutes is not enough to like learn anything. Right. So I just have to keep kind of working at it. And then I actually became a member of recording for the blind uh, when I was like, I think in sixth grade, uh, which is basically just, it's books on tape. And I would yeah. get these audiobooks on tape. So I would do, I would read the book and have it on tape. So I'd have both together. So I was always having this like, 
audio and visual, visual experience. At yeah. the same time. That's incredible, Michael. See, we were just talking before we went on air about the things you learned that you would never know because we never take the time to sit down and go, hey, tell me about your whole life. Um, yeah. I, I do want to know, were, was that ever a frustrating thing for you or was it something that you were like, this is just the path that I'm having to do? Like, did you have friends where you were like, why is it so easy for them and why do I have to go? Did that come up in your dialogue or was it just something that within your family you were it was like, this is what it is. We're just going to do the work and hope that we catch up. It was, it, frustration's the word. It was incredibly frustrating. Yes. And I, I, I would kind of liken it to sort of like uh, experience that we probably all have now, which is like uh, having a, an old cell phone and not being anywhere near like a decent signal, right? Which is like, you know, this phone is really powerful and then it's like, it's in this, like the span of all computing. It's very, very powerful, right? Like it's far more powerful than the computers we use to put people on the moon, right? right. So like it can, it can do the job for sure, but you're like, I can't connect. I can't get through and I can't even load a page to tell me like where the map says I should go. And that was kind of the, like that level of frustration. Imagine if that's like the frustration that you feel of like learning to read where you're like, I, I, I know I understand this because when you told it to me, I, I remembered it. It makes perfect sense. I filed away and all that and I can do that. But then when it comes time to like read it or write it down because the writing is sort of a kind of the reverse of that, right? So like I just had the messiest handwriting and still have the messiest handwriting. Like there's no way to make it <laughs> better. Uh, yeah. Did you, were you able to feel yourself evolving though? Or did you hit walls as you were, as you were doing the therapies and as you were getting your eyes to track were there moments where you would plateau? Is that something that happens? Um, were there mo- or was it just a constant evolution that you kind of would get um, a sense of like, oh, I'm getting it, or oh, I'm getting, you know, where it would uplift you? It was more like an just like an intense need to be normal, right? So mm. like, so so to like like I mean, I was always so when I started out uh, like in in school, it t- tended to be like in the slow reading group. Uh, and I was like, I belong in the, in the advanced reading group. And then, so you had to like, so for me, it was like, I just want to push through to the normal reading group. And then I want to push through to the advanced reading group. And like most of my friends in, in high school and college were people who all, you know, like took honors classes and that, like that kind of stuff. So I was like, so to me, that was normal, even though maybe that's exceptional, but whatever it was, it was like, I just want to. I just want to be with my with cohort, my colleagues, right? yeah, with the yeah, people that exactly. I hang out with and I and I relate to, and I'm on an intellectual sameness with everybody. Like, yeah. in, in on the inside of your brain, you're going, I am exactly like all of these people. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, so for me, like success was like just or like kind of overcoming it was like the ability to like take a standardized test and not screw up the ordering of the bubbles, right? Because like if you get if you get one wrong at the beginning, every answer is going to be right. off by, by one. So like if you if you were going to score like say 90% accurate, right, then you drop down to like 10%. Because right. you're just, everything's just off kilter of its lineup. Exactly. So getting that kind of stuff like right and getting it right on the on the timeline, right? Like on the if it was three hours for the test, getting it all like a normal person, I thought a normal person yeah. would, by the time the three hours is over, was like a really big deal to me. 
for like, like that was something yeah. that like only I would like obsess over. Right. But I, I mean, I can see from your perspective how that would be a, a large mountain to climb. And if you climb that, you go like, yes, like I did that, like, because it all stayed. And then you can really show what's happening inside and, and just try. But the, the physicality of lining up the answer that, you know, to yeah. reflect on a piece of paper is the actual challenge. Like that's that's mind blowing and so interesting. Where were you at in this time period? Because we've we've kind of scaled a large section of your life. Because sure. this is you know I mean this was not a one and done thing. Like this was an ongoing practice. Where did the interest to write come from, or how did that develop in your interest of reading even? It was, you know, it kind of came from a number of places. Like, the first and foremost, I think it was a little bit of an interest of just, like, storytelling generally was... Yeah. Um, my dad was just a tremendous storyteller. It's not how he made his living, but it was a kind of thing where, like, he just had a personality where he could start telling a story and, like, the whole table would sort of zoom in and, and right. like, oh, it's a, it's a Larry story. Like, right. <laughs> you know? And I always was, like, super cognizant of that because I was... I, you know, he would take, he started taking me to work with him when I think I was six months old. So I was always kind of this like fly on the wall. And I was always cognizant of like the sort of story that was kind of unfolding around like the behind the scenes of putting up the show, the show that they were actually presenting, right? It could be like, say, the Academy Awards or something like that. And then I was always cognizant of the fact that like my dad would then tell stories both to, the people that he worked with, like afterwards, because crew dinners are just kind of amazing. Right, right, right. And then also just telling them to like friends and family who didn't necessarily work in the industry. But I was always cognizant of like, oh, people are really like, he's really holding people's attention here. Yeah. Um, and so I was always kind of like turned on by that element of storytelling. And then for me, I think just, you know, is I just the reading bug kind of bit me because I felt like once I started. I think around middle school is when I started saying, okay, I can begin to kind of like, there's not a book that I'm going to encounter that I can't conquer in some way. Like yeah. conquer is kind of an aggressive word, but like... No, but like I, I mean, that, to, to fair into. enough. Fair enough, yeah. I think. I mean, I, I think when you have a background of going, this is a struggle, it does become like, I have the interest. I have grown in my ability to be able to do this. I am going to conquer that book. You know, I mean, it's like, yeah. I'm doing it. I'm getting in. I'm diving in. I'm going to hear the story. I'm going to read the story. I got this. <laughs> yeah. And so for me, it was just, it was like, I would just kind of camp out and I would... I was also kind of like very nerdy. And so I would like, I, this was more like early high school, but like on my free periods, I would go to the library and then I would sit by the, in the 900, this is the Dewey Decimal System. So I'd sit in the 900 section uh, and I would just read every history book that they had. That's and I, amazing. And, and I would just go through that. And then the librarian would be like, well, you, you know, you like, you've kind of run out of this. Like you should, you should kind of move over. <laughs> Maybe to hit, hit the 700s. <laughs> Yeah, well, she, so she, so I was like, I was always very good at like getting uh, like adults who kind of like who who knew their stuff to sort of say like, oh, suggestively, like, hey, he's kind of moving this direction, and so yeah. I because she was like, you keep showing up and like you're reading all of these books, so I'll give you more books, and that that was sort of you know that kind of experience was like I would just read those, and I was always just kind of. Uh, impressed. Even if it was nonfiction, it would just be, it was just a book that would either take me away somewhere or teach me something new. And I've always just been just like a kind of very curious person and in a almost kind of um, ADD kind of serial sort of way where I just, (laughs) it's it's hard for me to focus on like, okay, well, 
like, what do you want to know? It's, it's easier for me now that I'm an adult and time is precious. I'm right. like, okay, I need to focus <laughs> on things. Yeah. Wow. So in that, in that general time period, did you, you said you were drawn to the idea of the storytelling. Where did you start <laughs> to find your own voice with that? Like, when did it so, start to click for you that you were like, I'm going to tell? And in, in what direction? Did you have a cognitive thought about that? Very, I had a cognitive thought about it early, but I had it, but I shared it very late. So I was mm. super, super self-conscious about sharing it. So the Why? earliest... Why do you think? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I really kind of thought that, I thought that if I put that out there, that people would think it was silly. I, I, I think, honestly, I just, I was like, this is really... People think you want to like you want to be a writer, and it's a, it's a strange thing because there were like there were kids whose parents were writing for film and television. Well, that's why I asked because it's not as though I mean you grew up much like I did in the heart of where that particular dream is so normal. Whether it's yeah. to be a writer or a sound engineer or an actor, or I mean we we both grew up in an environment where you everybody knows somebody's parents who does that. So yeah. it's interesting that you you kind of had this naysay a little bit mentality when you, you know, if you were born in Kansas, I might go, yeah, they might look at you and go, you want to be a writer, really? Like farming, you know, or, you know, something of was, that nature. I think it was more like, yeah, I know what you're talking about with like being, growing up somewhere else because a lot of my friends grew up somewhere else and then came to Los Angeles right. to pursue creative things. And they kind of look at me like, well, you, you like you had all of this here. It was so right. normal. But I think it was just a, like a real kind of um, just an insecurity around like, if I say that's what I want to do, mm. it, it just, it would sound so funny. And I wouldn't, I just wouldn't like, I write funny things and I like it when people laugh, but I didn't know that I didn't know. I, I didn't, I thought that they would laugh more at me, not at whatever I had to say. Interesting. So I was always just intensely shy and kind of in my head, but and my family will sort of like back this up is that I would tell stories to I, if people that I knew, I would not shut up. Right. right. So I was constantly telling <laughs> stories to, and they were like, why don't you just go somewhere with go these do stories? That. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so for me, like my first real audience was my sister because we would travel a lot with my dad, um, like of going on shows to like, We'd go to DC every four years for whoever was being inaugurated. Yeah. And dad was doing it, and, but so that's for, so cool that he took you guys with. I mean, I love that. What an opportunity for him to say, "Not only am I going to go do this, but let my children see me do it and experience the event that is, you know, probably historical." Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And getting to see that is just a huge privilege. And then, but then the the sort of. I don't know the price that comes with it, but it's like your your bet. In my case, like my best friend is my little sister, and she would say the same. And so we would kind of have to keep each other entertained. And I was pretty good at telling her stories that made her laugh. Yeah. And actually, she's actually a pretty tough audience. <laughs> so, girl, she's actually fairly critical. <laughs> she's actually yeah. And so just getting her getting her laugh was kind of that early one where I was like, okay, I can kind of do that. But it wasn't until well, it wasn't until. Really, at the, for me, I, what I would consider like the last possible moment, which was after I had graduated law school, and I was like, "Oh, I want to." Oh, be okay. A, now we got to we yeah. got to go backwards because yeah. you just threw in a f monkey wrench. There's a lot, <laughs> yeah. 
So it was many years later before I was like, oh, I want to do this as as a, as a perfect. Okay, so let's go back. Yeah. Let's let's hit like your. Before high I would tell anybody. Yeah, let's hit like yeah. your high school years into college years. Let's start in the high school years. You're still kind of in a in a place where are you at this point where you're still going to the library on off hours? Are you still enjoying? Yeah, that, that part all of your- through high school. Yeah, I just I would read anything just that I could in high school. Yeah, and I I thought I was going to be a historian. Uh, of all things, I, I awesome. was mostly yeah. I was mostly gravitating towards reading history, and I thought, okay, this is what I want to do, and that's what I went to college for. So that was going to be my follow up. So with your family, were they like you? You should go to college. Was that something you thought you would want to do? Was that initially for history? Was that a thought? I'll be a historian, and then eventually teach history. Where was your thought process with that? Uh, for my family, the thought process, it was weird because my parents would give a kind of mixed message. Especially my dad would say things like, you can be anything you want to be. Um, but really, I knew that they both wanted me to be a lawyer or, <laughs> or, or, or that they wanted me to go to like an East Coast school to be and to kind of, I think, achieve like a, a level of like academic achievement that neither of them had. And so they wanted me to go to like a really prestigious school and go to law school. and. Yeah all that kind of stuff. Which, to be fair to parents, is that it's, especially if it's something you didn't achieve and you, and you know it's a possibility, it's like, listen, your mom and I work really hard. The world is your oyster. So if you, you know, like, set your sights on that, you know? Yes. I mean, I, I understand yeah. I, far more now, like I said, in my eras of pre-parent, now parent, I understand the era of definitely, like, we work really hard so that please, by all means, take advantage of what maybe we couldn't have done or what we just didn't know we could do. Um, but there is that fine line of like, is is this what I want? I don't know. So how did you yeah. receive that information? And what was the plan then? Where did you go? Uh, I, went to, I went to a school called Wesleyan University in mm-hmm. Connecticut. Uh, and I studied mostly history, um, but a lot of social sciences. So a little bit of economics, but I'm not a very good uh, econ student. <laughs> uh, and poli-sci and, and some philosophy, but I'm not great in those subjects either. Um, and then I didn't really... I, I, I enjoyed my time there and I thought... I, I, I had good relationships with my professors. Two things were kind of pushing against becoming a, a historian. One was this was the mid to late 90s. Um, and so, uh, this is not to bore everyone, but like the, the cold war was over and the most popular book that was sort of the must read in the history, in history circles was called the end of history and the last man standing. <laughs> um, and it's just kind of like, yeah, I mean, it sounds absurd at this point, right. To say that history is done with you because it's not, it's not, at all. Um, <laughs> it's not at all, but there was a real sort of feeling, I think at that time of like, well, maybe we've kind of moved into this sort of post everything phase. Um, and then at the same time, all of my professors pointed out rather gently that they were baby boomers who happened to be in great shape. Um, and they were like, there's not going to be a lot of openings, you know? Wow. So they had enough foresight to be like, listen, we're not retiring because I know that this has evolved into being a legitimate concern amongst the generations of baby mm-hmm. boomers who are not leaving their, their, you know, places of employment because they're like, we're still fine. Yeah. And that next generation is going, yes, but I, I, I'm trying to get a job. <laughs> and they're yeah. going, yeah, you're, we have no seats to fill right now. Yeah. And so it was, it was kind of just a sort of simple, like, okay, there's only a certain amount of, of 
tenure positions open, you know, in, in, in the sort of like the world generally. And I was just kind of like, oh, this, this feels kind of, this feels kind of closed in to me. Right. Um, May I ask, just because I'm curious, um, I, I am also quite a history buff just because I find it interesting. Um, I am by no means a well-studied history buff in, in, compared to other people, but at any point did you think, oh, maybe I'll just be a researcher and become like an expert in historical studies by continuing my academia and continuing on the research train and trying to uncover and unearth histories we don't know about? Was any of that of interest to you or are you just more in, involved in modern history where you were like, eh, yeah, I'm done. I'm I good. Was- I was interested in it as a career, but I also, I knew enough to know at the time that I was like, I didn't fit in. Like, like, like it was, I didn't know where I, I did not know where I fit in, but I knew that I wasn't fitting in there. And I had, I had some very kind professors who didn't say things like you don't fit in. They actually were encouraging me of sort of anything. A lot of them were actually encouraging me to go and become a writer, um, which is, I didn't take their advice right away. I, I, I did not. (laughs) Um, I instead, like, I, I kind of thought, okay, this isn't quite for me. It doesn't quite fit. I think it's a little bit too serious for what I'm trying to do. I didn't really have a plan at the end of my senior year, uh, graduation kind of comes or or it's like kind of looming. And my dad was going to get me a watch to say like, congratulations. Alright everybody, today's episode is brought to you by The Raven Cafe, located at 142 North Cortez Street in historic downtown Prescott, Arizona. I love this place. I eat there all the time, and let me tell you why. The Raven Cafe features a full, all-organic espresso bar and a wide variety of craft beers and wines. Their innovative menu is created with a focus on organic ingredients, many of which come from local sources. So head on over there. Enjoy a relaxing and comfortable environment decorated with rotating art shows by local and regional visual artists. And on the weekends, a lineup of the best in up-and-coming local music. You don't want to miss out on the Raven Cafe. It's absolutely one of my favorite spots in town. So head on over to ravencafe.com and order online or stop by to catch a happy hour on their beautiful rooftop patio. My sister Allison was like, you know, that's a really bad idea because he doesn't wear watches. <laughs> and and why don't you give him because he because and this is true, like to this, this has been true throughout my whole life. It's like I'll always value experience over things. Totally. And and so my I had done some traveling with my dad and I had spent a summer with him in Korea when I was about uh 12 and another one when I was wow. uh, about, uh, 15, I spent a summer in Hong Kong with him. So I had traveled a little bit, but I had this, I had this travel bug and my dad had uh, just a lot of free, frequent flyer miles. miles. Yeah. And he was like, oh, this is the cheapest gift I could ever give <laughs> He's him. like, I'm going to save my whatever on a watch and just go ahead and just transfer some mileage and say, don't kill yourself. <laughs> so they, exactly. So, and so he, he, they kind of were, my parents were kind of like, you have, you have basically one year. And I sort of was like, okay, I've got a year. I it was a weird kind of thing of like at the time I thought, okay, like I because I had read a lot of writers who had uh, I guess written what, what you'd kind of call like travel memoirs, right? And I was always struck by those, and that 
you know, one, going to those places, but two, kind of discovering yourself, right? So it's yeah. there's two things that are going on the in the stories. The coming of age, the unveiling of an experience, the learning through those experiences, the in immersing yourself in different cultures and how the expanding of the mind, you know, all of mm-hmm. those great tales that we all love to dive into. <laughs> and and test and like testing your 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 limits because I was kind of like, oh, like that was a big thing for me in high school where I was like, I want to go to school 3,000 miles away because I need, I love my parents, but I need to get away. I need to see what it's like to live on my own. Then when I got there, I was like, well, it's tougher than I thought. And then very quickly I realized, oh my God, it's, it's camp, right? Like they, like they give you all of the meals, you have a dorm room. Like it's not, it's, this isn't, this is not like, you're not in a really tough place, dude. You're actually in a very cushy place. Yeah, It's actually, so just, it's actually the best period of time ever because you're completely kept, but you're also on your own, but you're yeah, not going, oh, oh God, how am I going to buy my next meal? Oh wait, there's a cafeteria. Yeah. It's, it's, it's totally, it's totally perfect. And you're like, oh, but I felt like I had to like rock the boat and push sort of boundaries somehow. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to take this trip and I'm going to like, I'm going to have for the first time in my life, like some unstructured time where I'm just going to go anywhere I want in the world. Sounds amazing. I worked kind of for the summer before as like a PA. So I like made a little bit of money and I was like kind of ready to go. But I was like, oh, you know, I need a, I, I need a safety valve on this. Like I need a, I need a capper. And the law school thing, which my parents had kind of always been emphasizing, they were like, well, why don't you apply to law school, hit the road, we'll let you know when you, like if you get in somewhere and then you come back and like you have a place to go to law school and you can just be a lawyer and do all that. And it, it didn't sound good to me at the time, but it sounded <laughs> like a way to kind of like push forward, like to, to defer future. Right, 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 right. And also, it's, I mean, to their point, it's kind of like if you're going to go out on the edge of the cliff, at least you know there is something to come back for. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like there's some, whether it ends up being the thing you decide to do or not, there's just like, a, there, it does, it's a cap. It's exactly like you said. It's like, I'm going to go out, push the limits, see what I'm made of. But also, there's a timeline in which I can kind of rein it in and go, yeah. if, I haven't, if I haven't achieved my like individualized glory in X amount of months, chances are like I'm ready to come back and, you know, like... Right. <laughs> and I just, and I kind of thought, I was like, oh, I'm going to, like, I secretly thought... I'm going to go and do this and I'm going to get my story. I'm going to, I'm going to like, I'm going to, I'm going to pull it out of myself and the world and somehow. And then like what I discovered was like, not maybe, but like not a very good story, (laughs) right? Like, like like it was like, I had fun and I have like little stories here and there, but it does not like a memoir make, right? This is not, it's, it's not of that level of kind of story. It was like, (laughs) no, you just like, you're actually like kind of like a lot of other backpackers just bopping around doing weird things, yeah. seeing the world. Maybe you meet uh, some friends, get a little drunk, but like you're not writing a novel around it. <laughs> yeah, like, no, yes, nothing, like it, this was not like Hunter S. Thompson's like right. rum diary, right? <laughs> this was this was so far from that, right? And so it was just you're kind like, of a big... Come to find yeah. out, I'm fairly normal and I meet fairly normal people and I travel around in fairly normal ways. <laughs> yeah, and I'm, and I'm also like, I'm fairly, I'm more of a homebody than I wanted to admit to myself. I'm probably more timid than I wanted to admit to myself. Like, like all of the sort of things that I thought like, yeah, I can go out and kind of do that. I was like, uh, yeah. yeah, I'm more, I'm, I'm much more comfortable with like. I actually think there's a lot of value in that alone though, because I do think 
I think it's important that as humans, we find time to figure out who we are and because we ever we are ever evolving. Right. So mm-hmm. it's like to take that time before you dive into law school and go, oh, I'm doing this now or whatever it be to go. I really want to know what I'm made of. Like in my mind, I think I could be a Hunter S. Thompson and only to go live the reality and go, you know what? Good on him for being that. I'm yeah. actually much happier being me, you know, yeah, and, I, and yes. I think that's really I think that's an important thing because I think oftentimes people live in the shoulda, coulda, wouldas, you know, mm-hmm. and they think like if I had just blah, 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 I would have been blah, blah, blah. Some And sometimes you go do it and you go, yeah, you know what I found out? I found out I'm really good at being me. Yeah, that, that's a good, that's a really good way to put it. Cause there's a lot of things that I've tried like life-wise creatively where it, it took a little bit of time. And then I realized like, that's a cool thing. And I liked it to a point, but I didn't love it enough to say, right, hey, to go, this is my direction now, or this is my left turn pivot into being this experience. I, I exactly. think there's a lot of value in that where you're like, yeah. okay, I didn't get that big coming of age novel, but guess what? I learned that I'm, I know where I like my comforts. I know where I like my homebodiness. I know where I like the stability of something that is central to me. Um, I think that has equal value. It may not sound as exciting, but it has yeah. just as much value. Yeah, absolutely. So then you came back and you did the law school thing? I did do the law school. Where'd you I go? Went to, I went to Brooklyn Law School in New York. and uh, Well, you're still 3,000 miles away, so... Still 3,000 miles <laughs> away. And so New York, summer of like, I kind of arrived there like the end of the summer of 2000. And, you know, it, it was kind of, you know, people who talk, when people talk about New York, I find like they're always talking about some thing that no longer exists. You know, like they're <laughs> yeah. always like, oh, I live there. And like, it was very different. And I'm like, so I'll spare you like all of those details. But like, yeah, it, it was, it was a great place to be for me. Uh, I didn't like being in law school. I liked being in New York. Right. And I like, <laughs> I like the energy of New York. I like kind of everything, but but I did make like I needed to work and I need so I needed to pay for like rent and stuff like that. So I was getting a lot of like legal jobs and again, some very like kind professors who understood that I was probably in the wrong place, but they were gonna they didn't know the right place, but they were sort of like, maybe go try this. And so I would like so I spent I spent a little bit of time working at like a I worked briefly for like a criminal defense attorney. I worked at a um an intellectual property law firm oh, wow. for one that had to do with like uh, video games. Um, so I, I did like a lot of little things and I got my first writing jobs, even though I was like afraid to tell people that I wanted to be a writer. So um, at this point you knew you wanted to be a writer. Had that, had that like solidified in your mind by this point? It had solidified in my mind somewhere in the, like maybe as late as like junior year of college. I just couldn't bring myself to like tell anyone. I told like a handful of people, but it wasn't, it wasn't something I could like pursue. And then finally my sister said to me, you know, no one's going to just uh, like, like they're not going to just like walk up to you and be like, Hey, you should just be a writer and just give you a job. Like you have to put it out there. Right. And I was like, well, Smart that, sister. That, yeah. I was like, well, that's a very, like, that's very logical. That, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I, so I started writing a little bit of like, kind of satire on my own in in law school. And then I, this was a situation where actually somebody just kind of gave me a writing job was my very first <laughs> job. It was kind of a, like, but what happened was, was that I applied for a, I applied to work at a, a the legal department of a, of what was then called a new media company. And the lawyer who ran it said, oh, you know, like the, he, he liked my resume 
And he was like, can you send me a non-legal writing sample? Because most of what you're going to be doing is writing memos and they're like, they're legal related, but I would like, I'd like somebody who can actually write in a pleasing way. So I don't have to wait. Yeah. And so I sent him, I think he thought that I would send something like an essay from college or something like that. (laughs) But I, I sent him without really thinking about it. I sent him a piece. It was a a satirical piece that I had written that was about, uh, it was about Enron. And it it was, it was just about, it, it, it was kind of like a, it was a little bit of a satire of like, I imagined myself as a failing company yeah. And just that my parents would have to kind of keep putting money into this like <laughs> deferred thing uh, that it wasn't going to necessarily work out, but that it was like, don't worry, like it'll eventually all work out kind of joke. <laughs> and I sent it off to this guy and he called me back uh, like right away. And he was very gruff and he was like, you've got, a, you've got, a, you've got giant balls for doing this. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, what, what are you what, talking why? about? You, you said what you wanted to see my writing non-legal. Like. <laughs> and, and he goes, I can't believe that you sent a writing sample to a prospective employer with the F word in it. And I, <laughs> and, and I, I, I had a panic attack. Like I just, I was like, Oh my God. I, but before I could even like process through the panic attack of like, what had I done? He just kept talking and he was like, listen, you're not going to get this job. There's no way. I kind so, of appreciate but, him for that. Yeah, I appreciated that too because it took all the pressure off. I was like, all right, this, okay. this is fine. Okay, like, every, just... everything else from here on out can't be that bad. I mean, he's still talking. I already know I didn't get the job. <laughs> yeah, I was like, just yell at me for a little bit and then yeah. I'll, I'll hang up and we can all go our separate ways. But he was like, no, listen, he was like, you're very funny. I have a side project that I'm working on. Uh, come meet me for coffee. Let's talk about it. And I met him and he told me what it was. And it was just a... He was producing a book that was just a parody of like children's, uh, like it, it parodied children's stories. So like instead of the little engine that could, it was like the little engine that couldn't, right? And <laughs> like those kinds of things. And he was like, I need, I need ideas and I'll pay you $300 for an idea, which was basically just an idea was the title and the tagline of what the book would be. So it's really very little writing for lots of money or, you know, I mean, not, no, it's not well, a lot of money. I, well, but, especially in college, you're like, or, you know, out of college in that general time frame, you're like 300 bucks to give you ideas. Yeah. Oh, so I, right away, I was like, this is amazing. I need a place where I can focus. So I went to class and I went right to the back of like, I think my constitutional law class. And I, I need just a place sat- I can focus. I'm going to go to class and sit in the back so I can just tune out. And I just, I completely tuned out and I just started writing these things down. And I, I got, it was very, it was very easy and natural for me to come up with like, I think I came up with like 30 and then I submitted the best like 10. And he was like, these are great. I'm going to buy four. And I That's was like, like 1200 bucks. That was 1200 bucks. And I and literally, I was, if somebody had told me at that moment, it will always get, it will always be harder than this. <laughs> I, I might have rethought things, but I thought, oh, this is the best. Like this is, it can't get any, like, this is great. Right. Like if you start there, like where could it go? Um, yeah. So, so that so was that like, that was your kind of like induction into being, Hey, look at this direction. Yeah. And also just this, like this really, for me, like a really cool idea that I still kind of can't get over, which is that like, I can make something up and, and sell it to you. Like it, like it's, like it's, it's something a very, out of my brain could be worth value to your brain. 
Yeah, and yeah, and so I could, I could, just, you, you bought this? Like, I, I literally was just screwing around in class for, you know, an hour, and you paid me. <laughs> just totally not paying attention to my constitutional blah, 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 whatever. Um, yeah. I do want to ask, though, because you had, you had this kind of satire written already. At what point did you start creatively writing and storing away these pieces that you could just pull out to email future bosses? I wasn't, I mean, I wasn't thinking about like emailing them to future bosses or anything. <laughs> no, like. I, I was just, just kind of, I just meant the fact that you had it ready when he was like, email me something creative. You know, I was always, I, I'd started doing that even a bit earlier because college, I also was a, um, a reporter for the school paper. And so I would cover sports. I liked writing about sports. Um, and I usually covered women's sports. Um, so I mostly covered like softball and a little bit of field hockey and understand field hockey very well, but I would, I would cover <laughs> women's sports. Yeah. And Badass. I liked, I liked writing the, the sort of daily stories of like, you know, the team won or the team lost. But what I really liked was doing more like profiles and kind of like sort of like longer form pieces that were, they were a little bit more creative because you'd get to know the person and something about them. Right. And you were trying to communicate that in the story. And I was kind of enjoying doing those. And then once a semester, our paper would turn into, um, we'd call it the, the ampersand was our humor section, but the ampersand would take over the entire paper. And so every every department would write. I was too nervous to write for the funny pages, but I was I was not too nervous to write the funny stuff for the sports section <laughs> when it was like time to make the whole paper a joke. <laughs> if that it kind of makes sense, it does. So I so I started well, doing. Well, because there's a lot of pressure in like you have to be funny now. There's a lot less yeah. pressure in I happen to be funny with all this other stuff. Yeah, and so I started like so I started kind of doing that, and I was getting a good. I was getting a good response whenever those, you know, would come out or I would write like little, like I would occasionally write some like funny kind of ranty stuff yeah. in like literary journals at, in college. And people would like, sometimes people would read them. It wasn't that big of a school. So, you know, it wasn't hard. <laughs> like if, there, if there's not that many people, right? So it's right. like people are talking. It's like, well, yeah, there's like a few people talking, but like <laughs> people might notice it. And I was like, oh, this is like, this is kind of a cool feeling. And it just beats every other thing that I'm doing with my time by like a mile. So those were the things that really excited me. But I was always kind of reluctant to kind of say, oh, I want this. Jump into the ship, right. Yeah, because I was always like, what if I fail? What if people laugh? What, you know, and which is... Do you think, I'm just curious, because I, and I find this fascinating with most artists of any kind, is that there is that internal dialogue of like, what if I fail? What if people don't like it? Where do you think that comes from and the why? Like, why? I mean, some of it, I think, is just a, like a, probably a judgment that we all put on ourselves. You know, it's funny, though, because I think the thing that even growing up in Los Angeles that you or growing up kind of around an entertainment industry that you don't always get a huge appreciation of is, particularly with writing, is that it's an iterative process. But most of the time, what we fall in love with is the finished process. So you're reading the book or you're read or you're watching the film. And so you don't go back and read the screenplay. And if you do, you are not reading the first draft of that screenplay. No, and you're, you're not absolutely seeing all right. those successive drafts. And then, you know, like with what, you know, like musicians, you can, you can kind of watch people jam and do a session and you'd say, okay, like I see how this song is getting better. If you're going to, if you're going to try and figure that out as a writer, you have to either read it or you, or you don't get it. Like you'll never. 
You'll never see the process evolve. Well, and that's why even when I introduced you with writers and I say it's this introspective experience because just to your point, what we see as the finished product has oftentimes nothing to do with where it started or or it has a through line from where it started, but the evolution and all the processes to get to the final product are never the part people see. That's always yeah. the part either in your head, in your bedroom, with a select one or two people editing and tweaking, but the audience never experiences the journey of the introspection to get to the place that gets put out to everyone else. Like the part where you're refining and tuning and asking yourself, was this written correctly? Could I say it better? How can I voice this? Is this, is my humor coming across appropriately? It's funny in my mind, but will other people understand where the humor lies in this versus, are they going to take it literally? How do you, I mean, all those gauges are a whole dialogue in and of yourself, which gets yeah, intimidating because it, it's, then you're just questioning your own capability constantly. Yeah, and it, I mean, it took a long time to, like, it's not something that you have, fig- I think I don't have it figured out now, but it's something that's, like, I, it took me a long time to figure out even the sort of, like, um, like, like just kind of almost how to, if, if it's an instrument, right, like, like just how to play the, the instrument of your writing, right. right, so to understand that it's like, okay, I'm going for a, this desire, I, w- I want to laugh here, but I want them to be laughing uh, at the main character, which is usually in my writing, a, like a sort of a, a facsimile of myself, right? So I want the joke to kind of be on me a little bit, um, but I I want that desired effect. I want them to be laughing in this kind of gentle way, and I, like so, I'm, you're trying to kind of calibrate this thing, right. and you're it's an engineering problem in a weird way, but it's like engineering with emotions, and so right. you're yeah, and so you're trying to like accomplish it, but it you're you're like learning as you go so you're you're making a lot of mistakes as you're a younger writer and you're making uh, you're making mistakes particularly if you write funny things that are about uh that are sort of based on your life um then you're making mistakes in ways that are like they, they can have like real world consequences right like I, <laughs> yeah so you're trying to be like gentle and i would probably would more err on the side of like being a little bit too i don't want to say pulling my punches but i would i would tend to sort of like be a little bit more conscious of the real world consequences than I probably should have been. So it's sort of, how do you learn to like block out all that noise, write the thing, and then kind of present it in a way that like people get it. Yeah. And I would love to know, this is a total tangent, but I would love to know your opinion on this. We are currently in a time where the world is not as forgiving as it may have once been or not as appreciative of your authentic views, however you're putting them out. And I think that's an interesting point that you bring up. It's like, I want to be delicate or or find a way to massage the opinion or the thought that I'm trying to express, but with a, a big consciousness of what is also happening outside of my house all over the place. I don't know that writers of the past, I mean, obviously, history buff. This is not the first time our world has been volatile, you know, and this is not the first mm-hmm. time our country has been volatile in any way, shape, or form. But I do think the the current events and, and the writing of today is so much um, more fueled by the fact that if you're going to put it out, you're like someone... F- Three years from now, could go, oh, they put out this article three years ago, and this douchebag, blah, 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 you know, like, where at the time, it may not have been a big deal, but all of a sudden, it could be a big deal later, or vice versa. It's a big deal now, and then in three years, everybody's like, what was everybody so mad about? How do you, as a writer, um, like, tune that out, but also be aware? 
It's a combination of things. I mean, so so one aspect of it is is just knowing that like because I have a I have I have a lot. I have forty three years of stories. Yeah. I, my very first story that I've written like written about myself takes place when I'm six months old. Oh. Wow. So I mean, so I have a story. It's it's told from my dad's perspective because obviously he's <laughs> yeah. the one telling it. But like. So, and it's a, it's a story, like, this is a good example here, right? It's a story about him taking me to uh, the, one of the rehearsals for the Oscars uh, when I was six months old. And he handed me off to, like, a production assistant who very quickly, <laughs> which is, which is a, uh, so right there, like, we kind of have something that's like, that's, wow, that's pretty gendered, right? Like, and it's like, and because, I mean, it's a female that's, production. That's what I'm saying yeah. is that it's like, it's even things that are personal to our truths and our own personal histories and our own personal stories are looked at through a different lens now <laughs> than, and so that's, I guess that's the point of my, of, of my question is that it's like from the standpoint of creation, of retelling these stories in their truths, <laughs> do you put those stories out there just going, listen, it is what it is. Like, uh, you you have to understand context, time. You have to understand the humor. You have to understand where the lightheartedness and where the the capability of the moment they were in, where it all sat at that moment. So, I mean, the the thing you can do in the writing is you can bring in the context of the time. You can actually do all of that. You have to be really careful yeah. and you have to learn how to do that. And it does take time. And particularly when you're writing about people that you love, uh, you have to be even more careful. Yeah, you don't want to paint your dad who's awesome in some like chauvinistic, here woman, take my baby, you know? <laughs> it gets, you know no, it gets, it gets even worse than that because while he, did, while he did do that, he... <laughs> while that was I mean, what happened. <laughs> well, and not in a, not no. in like I think the chauvinism was really just like why wouldn't I hand my child right. to a woman, any woman, yeah. right? I mean, that's <laughs> that's just kind of like that's really that's nonsensical chauvinist thinking. But what happened from there was like she has a job to do. She doesn't want to carry this kid around, so she handed me off to somebody else. I then get like basically passed around the like God only knows who's like the production staff of, of making the Oscars in 1978. <laughs> but my at some point somebody says, Hey Larry, where's your kid? And right. and his first and his first thought is like Linda's gonna my mom, Linda's gonna kill me. Not like I'm concerned about Michael, but more no, like my I'm wife's concerned. gonna murder me because I lost my kid. Right. That's exactly <laughs> it. That's exactly it. And he puts out a call over like the the common and all the walkie-talkies, which is also something that's kind of falls under the sound department. So he knows how to do this. And very quickly they find me, but it turns out that I'm like, I'm playing in Frank Sinatra's dressing room, like having, like, like I'm on the floor with Frank Sinatra and he's playing with me. With some random baby. <laughs> with some random baby. And he's like feeding me a donut or whatever. I don't know. That's probably not appropriate for like a six month old, no. but maybe, I don't know. <laughs> And my dad comes in, he's relieved because I'm safe. And then Frank Sinatra proceeds to like lecture him about how to be a good dad, which is also a pretty rich thing. <laughs> right? And there's so much dynamic in this story. <laughs> there's a lot going on there. But then when you, so then, you know, it, writing it is one thing and you can bring people along and you can kind of, you know, you can shift time perspectives. You can say like, yes, this is taking place in the past, but we would think about it very differently today. I'm aware of all those things. Right. But, it to me, what happens is that's something you can't control and you have to make your peace with is once you put it out into the world, what happens next? And I, for a long time, was writing a lot of humorous stories just from my daily life, a story like that one. 
I put it on Facebook mostly when I had a smaller following of people who just knew me. So they were like, okay, this is just like another Michael story. It's fine. (laughs) But when it starts to get a little bit bigger, people don't know you. It also gets kind of because of just the way the algorithm works, which nobody really understands. But (laughs) I don't don't know. I'm still questioning if Facebook totally understands how their algorithms work. (laughs) I'm not sure. All I know is, is that it just takes context and it just completely rips it apart. And so what happens is, is like somebody reads your story in, in, a, in, in really without any context whatsoever, or they get a snippet of your story, right? And, you know, so and it, it's, it, just, it just kind of, it, it, it just gets worse. And then the bigger that thing gets, I think the worse, the, the less context there is, right? Like as you reach more totally. people, you lose context. Totally. And so that's something that I kind of had to, two parts is like, one is make my peace with, and accept that, okay, that's just the world. And then two is be, be thoughtful, as thoughtful as possible about how I present it. So instead of putting it, the whole story just directly on Facebook, dropping a link on Facebook to a newsletter format that people can read, and it's a little bit more quiet. So not everyone, not, not like, I think everyone has an opinion and it's a valid opinion, but that doesn't mean that everyone should share it all of the time. Right. And so, you know, kind of like switching to a newsletter has been a really good thing because it's actually made for a more quiet reading experience. People, yeah, people well, still read it, yeah. but it's... You yeah, see quiet. the whole thing in its entirety in a space where there's not all this chatter and noise around yeah. something of a clickbait subject versus the story itself. Exactly. Which is cool. I want to go back for a second. Did you graduate law school? I graduated law school uh, in 2003. I took what the type bar. of law? Everybody always asked that, like, like it was, like it was, like that was like a real possibility. Um, <laughs> You're all, listen, <laughs> it, you know, we it was, didn't it go was that kinda, far. <laughs> well, it's kind of like, like I got okay grades and all that, but I was like, I was mostly crossing off things, right? So it was like, okay, I know I'm not going to be a copyright lawyer. I know I'm not going to do IP. Like, I know I'm not going to do criminal law. Like, Divorce. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I was just crossing all these, like, through mostly through work experience, I was crossing things off the list. And so the list had basically been whittled down to zero. And my parents were like, (laughs) because I literally was like, I'm not going to take the bar. I'm done. And my dad was like, you know, you're being an idiot now because like you really did the hard part. This should be easy. And I was like, dad, it's a big test. People study for it. What I didn't tell him was I was scared to death that I would fail because I knew that if I failed, I wouldn't take it again. Because what's the mm, point if you're not right. going to be... If right. you're like, yeah, that makes sense. You're like, listen, I, it's like a one or done. And even if I do pass, what do I do then? Like now I'm committing to even more. And but, yeah. yeah, but here's the really like messed up anxiety-ridden part, right? It's like, instead, my thinking was, dad's right. I do have to take this because people will assume that if I... They won't believe that I didn't take it. They'll think I failed. Well, I mean, I... I, I I could see that. It's not. It's because <laughs> I, mean, I, I would say that I'd be like, oh I, yeah, I didn't take that test. And they're like, you didn't really after law school. Yeah. You didn't even try to take the test. Yeah, no, no, I didn't want to do that. Yeah, yeah, she failed. <laughs> exactly. It's 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 per, it's a perfectly logical inference. And so I was like, I have got to pass. I've got to take this test. I've only got one shot. I. That's a lot of pressure. Not, yeah, yeah. Instead of the stakes being like your job or your career, the stakes are kind of your whole identity, right? Like, like right. You, you've put like you've put a whole lot more onto it than needs to be on it. 
So I studied for an entire summer. It was really the most law that I've ever studied because I didn't really study a whole lot in law school. Yeah. Um, and I, I took it and I passed. And then I thought, I'm never coming. I'm done. Yeah. yeah. You're like, I did it. I proved it. Now no one will say I failed. And now I'm going, I'm out. So you pass it. Then what did your family say? They were like, well, you passed. And were you like, yeah, I did. You're welcome. Here's where things get complicated. <laughs> You're welcome. I did it. I followed all the instructions. I did everything you thought I should do. Now I don't want to do that anymore. <laughs> Thank you for listening to my conversation with Michael Estrin. Part one was totally captivating, was it not? Join me on Friday for part two. All right, y'all. Today's episode is brought to you by Gray Dog Guitars, located at 141 North Cortez Street in historic downtown Prescott, Arizona. Gray Dog Guitars is an authorized tailor, Gretsch, Guild, and Reverend dealer with a friendly, knowledgeable staff and a welcoming environment. Whatever you are looking for, whether to buy, sell, or trade, Gray Dog Guitars has you covered. So stop by today and check out their great selection of new, used, and vintage gear and check them out at www.graydogguitars.com. Thank you for listening to The Creative Convergence, coming to you from Raven Sound Studio in historic downtown Prescott, Arizona. Are you a professional in the arts and would like to share your story with us or a company that would like to advertise with us? Shoot us an email at contact at ravenproductionsmedia.com. Help support the arts by becoming a Raven Productions member. To get your perk card and be the first to know about all of our upcoming promotions, events, and online programming, your membership will directly support the arts programs in our schools. Sign up today at ravenproductionsmedia.com. Until next time, be safe and enjoy the journey.